0: Professor Allen's Comics Reading Journal, for the month of September 2021. Welcome to episode 76 of this podcast, a.k.a. Work from Home Journal number 19, or back-to-school journal in a blended hybrid format, but also a lot of it from Home Journal. Mmm. Nah, I, I think that's too many words. The concept of the show, is to just have a brief chat about what comics I've read since the last time we had one of these brief chats, which should make this pretty much the comics I read during September. These books are listed weekly in blog posts at eyesandearsblog.blogspot.com, and I regularly repost them on my Facebook and Twitter so you can find those. But those posts aren't really spoilers for the podcast, since those are just lists and here, there's a little more review, a little more critique, a little more discussion. But first, a little feedback. And we heard from Supergirl's favorite blogger, Dr. Ange. Definitely a great month for comics for you. The Kirby first-issue specials are a solid tree of, of, of books showing all his strengths, Did you know James Robinson brought Atlas into the superbooks around the time of the new Krypton storyline? And as you say, Manhunter is a very solid book and Mark Shaw certainly had some legs. Yes, I am a bit invested in that character. Yes, you are, Ange. Hashtag Leviathan Theory. But for me, I love that you sampled Sojourn. I will tell you that the early issues when Arwen first discovers her bow and goes out on the quest to unite the five pieces of Aiden's arrow is very, very solid comic reading. Ron Mars truly world builds. And this is the early Greg Land art, still incredibly cheesecakey, but before the tracing and lifting took over. As you say, cross-gen was a candle that burned twice as bright and lasted so briefly. I wondered how the Sojourn story was going to end and asked Ron Mars at a con. And then included a link that I've put on our blog post for the episode for when he put that story on the Comic Box Commentary blog. I would highly recommend those early Sojourn issues. Thank you for that cross-gen information and recommendations, Doctor. Yes, as I flipped through each book or saw each house ad, I kept thinking about all that talent and all that cash that they were burning through. And Doc Strange, a.k.a. Billy D, also commented, Calling it a good episode. That helped his morning commute. Thank you for that, Billy. And Ed Moore. From the Boom Addiction podcast, where he and Chris Parton have talked about all the issues of the many deaths of Layla Starr, wrote in to let me know that on the release day of last episode, the last issue of that series had also been released. More on that later in the episode. And from Sir Luca of the Upstate of the Excellent. Earth Destruction Directive Podcast. Professor Allen wanted to drop you a quick line to say that I enjoyed your August installment of the Comics Reading Journal, as I do every episode. I especially dug all of the Jack Kirby comics you discussed as part of honoring the late King of Comics. You mentioned two Kirby books that I want to note. The first is Forever People. Which has been a personal favorite of mine since I first read the old Grayscale Collected Edition about 15 years ago. Often I hear their Forever People dismissed as the weakest of the Fourth World titles, and while that may or may not be true, these offbeat adventures just clicked with me. My favorite is issue number three The Introduction of Glorious Godfrey and His Justifiers. That issue with Godfrey preaching anti-life to the thunderous applause of a willingly complicit populist, has plenty of bombast, but also is chilling in Kirby's depiction of the power of fear and hate. Not every issue hits that high mark, but that one always stands out to me. The second comic I wanted to mention was First Issue Special featuring Atlas. This is one of the favorite one-shot comics in my collection. I was introduced to Atlas from his return as a Superman villain under the pen of James Robinson and the coming of Atlas, part of the new Krypton storyline. Okay, I get it, listeners. I need to read some of the new Krypton (laughs) storyline. First issue special one is reprinted in the Coming of Atlas collection, and I later found the actual issue as well. Of all the short-lived concepts which came from DC, Marvel, and others in the 1970s, the one which I most would have liked to see was more of Kirby's Atlas. Just a fantastically crazy sword and sorcery story, perfectly suited to Jack Kirby's wild world-building and beautifully ugly art. I even covered it on an episode of Back to the Bins. Looking forward to more Sword and Sorcery in September for hashtag Fantasy Comics Month and everything else as well, Sir Luke. Thank you, Luke. Always appreciate the effort that you put into your comments. And I've learned that if my feedbackers... Could be Luke, Ange, Martin, Michael Bailey, Billy D, Ed Moore. Of that crew, if I get two who comment independently on the same thing, like Atlas in this case, that is something I should pay attention to. So again, thank you for that. Uh, Social media support for last episode came from Dave's. Hero Comics Blog, Karen from Between the Pages, Chris Lydon, Evan Bevins, Robert Ludwig, The Most Sane Man Among Us, Sir Iowa's Joe Crawford of the New, 21st Century Boys Podcast, King Dinosaur, Herman from the Long Box of Darkness, Charlton Hero, The Telltale Mind, Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army, Mark Radulich, Ryan Baldoff, Matthew Lance, About Superman, Captain Chili, Mike from Comics in the Golden Age, Max from the Weird War podcast, Gene Hendricks from Two True Freaks, and our reigning listeners of the year, the Sutherlands from the Rad Adventures Network. And now on to the books that I read last month. As I do on this show, I'm categorizing the books that I read, and first up, are issues that I read specifically for podcast appearances, the homework books, and we have none of those. That's what I get for getting ahead in my podcast prep. And comics I read for listening to podcasts, mostly because of the DC Infinite app. Because I love following along with comic book podcasts when I have the chance, and the app certainly gives me more opportunities to have that chance. So thank you, DC Infinite, and thank you, DC Comics-themed podcasters. To listen to episode 51 of the Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace podcast, I went very old school and read Wonder Woman number 10 from the very first volume, that's right, from 1944. This was a full-length, 40-plus-page story about Wonder Woman thwarting an invasion of Earth by Saturn, ending with a peace treaty and trade relations between the planets. Appropriate. And a listen-along with episodes 64 and 65 of Charlie Niemeyer's Superman in the Bronze Age, Through Two True Freaks are at Action Comics 552 through 554, a strange story that sent the Man of Steel back to the dawn of time, while the forgotten heroes, including, but not limited to, Cave Carson, Rip Hunter, Dolphin, she's hot, that is true, Shag, and Kongorilla battle Vandal Savage, and the Immortal Man is there as well. That was two issues, and then we get 554, which hypothesizes a world without a Superman, but is really a 22-page thank-you note to Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, with a sly reference to Joe Simon and Jack Kirby at the end. Not the world's greatest comic book story, but certainly interesting to read as much as an artifact Then as a monthly issue of a long, ongoing series. And to listen along with episodes 104 and 105 of the Legion Clubhouse, I read Legion of Superheroes, 260-262, through 262, as the team solved a murder mystery at a circus. Sorry, a space circus. And then, they ran into some pirates. No, sorry, space pirates. And to listen along with Billy and Herman on the excellent All-Star Squadron podcast, A World on Fire, episodes 17 and 18, I read All-Star Squadron 25 and 26, and also annual number two, which continued the ultra-humanite story that introduced Infinity, Inc. And for listening along with Tim Price, the Podcrasher on his Outcasters show that he does with Ashford and Sarah. Episode 17, I read Batman and the Outsiders 16, where we learned about Halos, mystery shrouded past. And I listened along with Laurel, a.k.a. Flower, and her crew, on episode 59 of the Huntress podcast. I read from the 1994 Chuck Dixon miniseries The Huntress 1 and 2, A gritty, 90s-tastic story featuring Helena Bertinelli, which I liked way more than any of those podcasters did. And on to new comics that we read right off the shelves. And we have one, although I read it via Hoopla. But Boom Books, or at least this title, tend to release sometimes the same day, sometimes within a week or two, after the physical comes out. So I read the aforementioned final issue of the excellent series, The Many Deaths of Layla Star No. 5, written by Ram V. This was a very interesting mode of ending a series, not so much by focusing on the plot elements, they were there, but quickly dismissed as unimportant. And then instead turning into a meditation of death. And therefore, a meditation on life. Interesting, most definitely. And I'm pretty sure that I liked it. And to the general comic reading that I did, from the big care package I got recently from Manuel Carmona from Truthful Comics and the nonprofit effort Comics for Christmas, I read. Because you demanded it in their own monthly series. I mean, that's what the cover says. The cover of Excalibur No. 1 from 1988. The only other one of the series that I've read, I think, are three that I did for Quarterbin 100, I believe, with Mark Adams as the guest. But it was fun to read the first one Nightcrawler and Megan and Captain Britain getting settled in, and they end up battling. War Wolves. And a battle for the cowl tie-in. Gotham Gazette One Shot from 2099. It bounced around from character to character, setting the stage and giving us the info as to where everyone was during that time frame. And as a tone setter, as a stage setter for an event, I think it worked. And from World's Greatest Comics, Black Friday and various sales. I think this one cost me 50 cents. Marvel feature number seven, starring Red Sonia. In this one, the she-devil with a sword has been employed to secure a specific ancient document. But a certain Sumerian also wants that artifact. So we get some solid Conan on Sonia fighting a true battle of the Barbarians, with much, much drama. And from Hoopla, I found the last issue of a black and white Mike Barron and Paul Galassi series, mini-series, that I've read in a very scattershot manner over the last year or so. But this one wrapped it all up, The Grackle, number four. Again, wrapped everything up in this Storyline was a combo of big city politics, big city crime, how those two are related to each other, with a few quote-unquote weird elements thrown in as well. It was a rough-and-tumble crime story, and I read it in such a disconnected manner over such a long period of time, like I read the issues as I acquired them, which were out of order, I think maybe next year. When we do hashtag Crime Comics Month, maybe I'll read the whole story again in order. And some kids' books that I read mostly from Sir Rob Lance's care packages and also some from Pulp Reality or Hoopla. I read Richie Rich Prophets, number 19. Pep, 300, 346, and 349. Betty and Veronica. 176 and 218. Dell Comic Album 5, Treasure Chest of Fun and Fact, Volume 13, Number 1, Winnie the Pooh, Number 2, Archie Annual, Number 1, and Archie and Me, 24 and 85. The Dell comic deserves a mention here, as it was from 1959. Manuel sent me this very falling apart comic. Featuring Woody Woodpecker. So, thanks for providing me with that very old school issue. Now, the Treasury Chest comic was actually from 1957, and that one was actually holding together reasonably well. I mean, considering that I'm like eight years younger than that comic, let's just say my pages are not nearly as well preserved as this comic book's were. And then Even older than both of those, although I read this one digitally, was Archie Annual No. 1 from 1949. Lots of fun throwback stories with very strange character models. But the strangest part was the note in front from quote unquote Archie Andrews, which, I remind you that this was 1949, talked about how sometimes, quote, first editions have a value exceeding the price you pay. Often in the publishing business, the publisher himself asks readers for certain issues and offers to pay a premium price. So hold on to this magazine. One never knows. Now, to be fair, a copy of Archie Annual Number no. 1 in any decent condition would probably be worth a good amount today. No, I didn't look it up. But I was legitimately surprised, shocked, that speculation was mentioned and mildly encouraged among comic book fandom in an issue more than seven decades old. So while we ponder that, let's take a break here, and when we come back, We'll talk about graphic novels, trade paperbacks, long runs, and seasonal reading that I did during September.
1: i'm ruth
2: and i'm darren of the rad adventures network
1: we're a married couple who enjoy great stories of all kinds including adventures mysteries science fiction and fantasy
2: please join us for a variety of podcasts focused on a range of pop culture topics
1: trekker talk is about 23rd century bounty hunter mercy saint Clair from the comic trekker by writer and artist ron randall it's a blend of classic sci-fi adventures and noir mysteries set in a retro future
2: Xenozoic Xenophiles is about the comic Xenozoic Tales by writer and artist Mark Schultz. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs.
1: Warlord Worlds covers the many comics of writer and artist Mike Grell, including the Warlord, John Sable, Green Arrow, and the Legion of Superheroes.
2: Sensational Sluice, where we talk about favorite mystery novels, movies, and TV shows.
1: Fantastic Fantasies, where we share our favorite fantasy films and books.
2: And Amazing Adventures, where we discuss action-packed adventure stories.
1: Listen on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
2: Or visit RadAdventuresNetwork.com to find all of our shows and links to our social media pages.
1: That's Rad, R-A-D, which is short for Ruth and Darren.
0: And we're back to talk about trades, long runs, and miniseries that I read last month. And, as I talked about last time, every month we will have some type of seasonal reading. Expanding from just beyond the holidays and war books and horror books. A bunch of us in the Twitter Comicsverse have assigned a comic genre to each Month, Not superheroes, by the way, because every month is superhero month. The purpose of these efforts is to bring some attention to comic genres that go beyond capes and cowls. And seeing as both Bilbo and Frodo Baggins have their birthdays in September the same day, the 22nd, if I remember my Lord of the Rings right, it was decided to make that month hashtag Fantasy Comics Month. So here, in roughly alphabetical order, are the fantasy comics that I read in September. Aria, number one, from Avalon Studios through Image, from 1999, which I picked up for a dime, I think. This is a dark fantasy. Looking at the world of fairy tales in a dark, or, in comics world, realistic way. The idea is that some of these types of characters, fairies and elves and magical royal houses, are still existent today. And that's not a new idea, but it's a good one. And I think I like the lead lady character in Aria. This one did only four issues, and I'd be interested in the other three if I ever found them for cheap. Now, the very first listener to send us stuff, way back when me and M were getting started, was Ron Sadowski, formerly Ron Just Ron, of the former podcast known formerly as Dinner for Geeks. And in that very first care package was a limited series that M read right away, but I just never got to. Until last month, when I read Peter David and Esteban Morado's Atlantis Chronicles. 1 through 7. Told as sort of a long-lost history of Atlantis, leading just up to the days of the heroes that we know. It is an epic history, each issue pretty much coming from the perspective of another historian, or chronicler, as they're called. With back matter that explains how these hidden histories were discovered recently, and the academic backgrounds thereof, It really was like reading a multi-generational epic fantasy novel. I know that that multi-generational epic fantasy novels are not necessarily the number one preferred literature for all comic book fans. But if you like that kind of novel, that kind of story, written by a pretty good, solid, experienced writer in Peter David, with some very pretty pictures to accompany it, Atlantis Chronicles is not a bad way to go. You know, we've talked about this genre definition that we're doing each month, and how some genres are not as clear-cut as others, or to say it another way, some titles, certainly some stories, may fit into more than one category. We'll talk about where steampunk fits in, for example, in a few minutes. And I've saved many of my comics featuring a certain Sumerian for next year when Adventure Comics Month rolls around. But a lot of my colleagues read his stories this month. And there are certainly enough magics and sorcerers and strange unexplained phenomena and beings to legitimately qualify them here. And so in Solidarity, I read a book that Kirk Spencer recently sent in, Conan the Barbarian 43, from 1974. In it, he and Red Sonia head to the Tower of Blood, which, you know, now that I think about it, this could have been October reading, because they find themselves trapped by vampires. Because in the pulp adventures, these things happen. And then one series that I read a good many years ago, back when I was getting back into comics 15 years ago or so, from Trades in the Library. And then we found a good bunch of them in a quarter box a number of years ago. So I figured that hashtag Fantasy Comics Month was a good reason to revisit a bit of Colleen Duran's excellent work, A Distant Soil, one through seven. These stories combine fantasy and sci fi and adventure, and superpowers in such a way as to be really exciting, really energetic. And this series goes just about everywhere, from the boring American suburbs to a sleek spaceship to King Arthur's realm of Avalon. The premise, and it's pretty good, is that these various doors pop up throughout time and space, giving the story, and giving Colleen Duran, reasons to write and draw stories in a range of settings, genres, and styles. I really like Duran. I put her up there with Wendy Peeney and Pete Craig Russell in terms of producing really beautiful comic art in the fantasy genre. And then there's a series that I started reading earlier this year, but once we landed on September as Fantasy Month, I put off wrapping it up until now. ElfQuest, the final quest, 13 through 24, in which Cutter and his wolf riders try their best to make peace with the other types of elves, like water elves and others, so that they can all, as one megatribe, battle the evils of the round ears. That's us, by the way. And our high-tech, gunpowder-powered weaponry. We meet the original Mother of Memory, And we see Cutter try to make peace with the King of Trolls. Because this was a series that was intended to wrap up a ton of storylines over the broad sweep of the ElfQuest history. We did get to things that I was unfamiliar with, because there's a lot of ElfQuest in the middle of the storyline that I haven't read. I kind of skipped to the end with this series. But they do a pretty good job of explaining and introducing those elements. And you know when that happens, there's a delicate balance between over-explaining, slowing the story down, especially when you have a specific ending coming up, specific number of issues, number of pages. And then the other side is not explaining enough. But for the times where stuff went over my head, I was enough entranced by the storyline and the characters to just go for the ride. And more often than not, it was totally worth it. The drama was there. Important places to the elves were destroyed. Major characters died. Some survived. There were losses, and there were certainly victories. There may eventually be stories beyond this. You know, the phrase final quest may end up being like the phrase farewell tour to 60-something-year-old rock bands? There's always a chance, but in the wonderful pieces of prose at the end of issue 24, Wendy seemed pretty sure that they were done. And if this is the end, and it probably is, it worked, and overall this series, the Peenies' accomplishment with this title for four-plus decades now, is an incredible achievement, ranking right up there with Cerebus and just a few other indie titles that have lasted this long, and been this influential. Along the way, Em and I have picked up a weird assortment of miscellaneous fantasy books, usually for 25 cents, sometimes for 10, with the occasional big spending scenario of 50 cents. And some of what we picked up were from Michael Moorcock's world, including some Elric. So I supplemented what we had with Hoopla, to read from first comics, Elric 1-6. through I haven't read anything from this world, novels or comics, with the possible exception of one issue of Quorum for an episode of Back to the Bins many years ago. And I have to say, this was a pretty cool world, different enough visually from most other fantasy worlds. The roles of chaos and order, the various gods actually appearing to various people, all that... Set this apart from other, similar stories. Yes, there is a quest, and yes, there are magical swords, and yes, there are dragons. But the weak, pale-faced emperor hero was such a change of pace. That really makes for a unique story and world. The excellent fantasy artist P. Craig Russell does a lot of the work here, working with the almost as excellent Michael T. Gilbert. So it looks very, very weird which is exactly how this story should look. Very enjoyable series, and there are many more comics in this world, and maybe in a year or so, if not before. I'll read some more in this world. I don't think I'm done with the Eternal Champion and Stormbringer, the Sword. I mentioned steampunk before, and it can be a tricky subgenre, because some of it is closer to sci-fi But another stream of steampunk is closer to fantasy, like this one. So the gear station, 1, 2, and 4, from Image, from 2000, pretty much counts right here. Two of these I got from the recent dime sale to go along with another one we purchased a few years back, probably for a quarter. The world is one of royalty and magics and fairies. But the mythic quest that our lead character, the winged redhead Curie, Embarks upon is for the mythic 23rd Gear, which has supposedly been found. Good drama, good fights, good heroes and villains, solid story. And the art has to be mentioned here as well, as that was part of the marketing for this title, because the backgrounds were fully CGI, which was a new thing at the time. And this is definitely arresting, it's attention getting. There are mixed media aspects of the art. And that works for a genre that itself fits between the cracks of different genres. You could say steampunk itself is mixed media. Always, I have to say that I am a sucker for anything steampunk or steampunk adjacent. So I enjoyed this, but I admit that I went into it very strongly disposed to like a series like this. Some quarter and 50 cent books. From the RPG world, Pathfinder 4 through 8 from Dynamite, written by Jim Zub, who many, many years ago we had on an episode of the Book Guy show. Very nice fellow. And his Skull Kickers book, which would also make good hashtag fantasy comics month reading. Note to self to read some in a year. Skull Kickers is also one of the funnier books around. Pathfinder, not as funny but it still hits all of the tropes of this type of story with some truly ugly monsters, ethereal elves, scary dragons, and all of that. And another probable cheap book, I think from the old days at In the Ballpark, the OG source for quarterbooks, Pathways to Fantasy Number 1 from Pacific Comics. This was an anthology book with five complete stories ranging from sword and sorcery to fairy tale retelling to a dark goblin story. Interesting issue, Uh, this is the only issue of this title, and it was a nice mix of stories and of art styles. It was a bit of a challenge, finding archy stories that fit this criteria. Some of the other genres were, or will be, more fruitful. So this was maybe a bit of a stretch, but I'm counting... Pep Digital 22, Archie's Buried Treasure, or technically, as it says on the title, Archie's Buried Treasure. Because this is all about pirates. And since there are stories about pirate ghosts and cursed treasures, I'm counting it here. And even though some of these featured Little Archie, which is not my favorite bit of the extended Archiverse, overall, is a pretty fun collection of stories. And sometimes fantasy related or fantasy tangential stories can be light and fun. So, this was a good and needed change of pace. From a Kickstarter that Kirk Spencer supported, I read Sagas of the Shield Maiden, book one. It takes place in Viking days, pagans invading Christian Europe and all that. Actually, there wasn't a lot of magic, like no magic, in this. It's probably more historical fiction than fantasy, but that being said, the book is pretty, the stories are fine, and overall, not a bad series, just not maybe, not technically, fantasy. But then we get one of my favorite all-time comic series, which I've always loved, and then to be honest, I loved it even more when M discovered it as a young person. Lo, those many years ago. And decided that they'd spend a decade or so interested in comics. So, in addition to enjoying this series, and I did enjoy the reread, I also appreciate this series and recognize its personal importance to me. And that series is Sword of the Atom 1 through 4 and Specials 1 through 3. These books do represent part of the descent of Gene Loring. As we start this series, she's making out with a work colleague and being discovered by Ray Palmer. And all of that takes place in their very own driveway, which seems to me to be a wanting-to-be-caught scenario. Ray heads off to the Amazon to do some science research, let a few weeks pass, after which they can discuss their relationship future. And on the way to the Amazon, Ray gets stuck at six-inch size, and finds himself in an alien fantasy land. And he becomes a hero, brandishing a sword and saving the princess from the usurper who would kill her father, the king. The miniseries is terrific. For me, it's still held up, and it really works as a miniseries, with Ray saving the day at the end, but being exploded out of his fantasy kingdom with all his powers restored. But the chances of finding that exact same miniature land in the huge Amazon forest a second time, that seems unlikely. And so at the end of issue four, he is faced with the prospect of having some difficult moments with Gene. And then the specials come a year or so later, and the first one had an interesting narrative structure. It was told as portions of a book. Written about the Adam and Gene and his adventures in the aftermath of, well, his supposed death, or at least the expectation that he would never return to Ivytown and all that. So we get some retelling of the miniseries, but also the setup for how he returned uh, to our world. The second special was solid, a return to the land of Morlaid and a final resolution with Gene and Paul and all of that Ivy Town stuff. And then the third one, maybe it was the plot involving a deadly virus that turns people to zombies. Whatever. That one, I admit, did not work for me as much. But overall, the miniseries, the specials, it's a terrific bit of work. I highly recommend it. Gil Kane, Jan Sternod, it's excellent work. And if you read the mini and the three specials, you get a full story beginning, middle, and end. Very enjoyable. Warlock 5, Book 2, Issue 5. This is a black-and-white manga-style fantasy from Aircell from 1989. The concept is that five warlocks, each with their own unique and distinct magical power, have united to... Come on, try and guess. They've united to... That's right, to save the Earth. Because of the ongoing, long-term, decompressed nature of this type of story, it's kind of tough to comment on the activity of a single issue. But I like the design elements of the characters, both the good guys and the bad guys. That much I can say. And, well, from Warlock, we have to go to Warlord, of course. And here we have, right from the beginning, First Issue Special 8, and then Warlord 1 through 10. I can't remember which of these I had first. I know I had the First Issue Special early on, but I don't remember if I backfilled that one after the main series started. Either way, I was a fan of this character right from the early days, and collected the whole thing, annuals and all. And then... When we moved from Virginia to Ohio was part of the cost-saving, moving, because, you know, moving is expensive and paper is heavy, in 1999 I sold the entire run, although for a decent amount of money. I kept the first issue special, I remember that, and then I rebuilt about 80% of the Warlord titles since then, plus a few follow-on Warlord titles, all from the quarter bins at the late-lamented In the Ballpark store, and a few other places, since that location went kaput. And although I do have some beat-up copies of the first year or two of stories, including a couple recently sent in by the kind and generous Kirk Spencer. Thank you. I read most of these, Warlord 1 through 10. Most of these I read from the Savage Empire trade paperback. And I like how... The origin story did a good job of explaining the situation of the Hollow Earth, how Travis got there, and then quickly thrusting him into the political and warfare situation as well as introducing the female lead. And then we get the first few issues of the ongoing that expand that world and introduce Travis's eventual good buddy, Machiste, and a couple of exciting dinosaur fighting issues, as well as the obligatory fantasy trope of being captured, enslaved, and forced to fight as gladiators. We also add Mariah to the cast in these early days, and defeat, at least temporarily, the big bad of Deimos. Most of these early issues are one-offs. That was the nature of comics in the late 1970s. And even though we haven't met the whole of the cast in these first ten issues, no Morgan relatives, no Shakira yet, But still, you can see the world being built for the adventures to come. Now, I read these ones right after wrapping up the Sword of the Atom mini, and you can really see the similar structures that are happening there. I don't say that Mike Grell came up with the structure by any means, or that Gil Kane and Jan Sternad swiped it. But certainly, they all utilized that same playbook when putting together their sword and sorcery tales, less than a decade from each other. But then again, it's also the John Carter playbook. So it's an old story structure, and it's one that's used often because it works. And again, I've said this a couple times already, I'm definitely thinking that next September might see some more of Travis Morgan and this title. Actually, I'm going to say... Definitely. Well, I have to say, in terms of quantity and quality, that was an exceedingly enjoyable month of seasonal reading. Next time, of course, will be a full range of scary comics for Halloween times. Do have a little bit of other comic book reading that I did uh, for the month. Manuel Carmona from Truthful Comics, and in a care package recently, I mentioned that made up of some pretty cheap comics, including Convergence, Crime Syndicate 1 and 2. Em and I read about half the Convergence books, the the miniseries when they came out, and since then I found a few others, but this one had slipped under the radar for me, so I was glad to read it. It's the Crime Syndicate of Earth 3 versus the Justice League 1 million. I like these mini matchups, these quick looks at teams or characters long out of continuity. In this one, Superwoman is on death row and even without their powers. The Syndicate mounts a breakout operation. And then, as always happens at the end of Issue 1 of a Convergence Mini, things go crazy. I enjoyed most of these minis, and I'd say I enjoyed this one as well. Green Lantern 20, 21, 22, and 35 from the early 90s. Hal is looking to rebuild the core, and it doesn't go great. We have a lot of boudica in these issues, and every letterer's least favorite villain, Flicker. Kerning matters, everybody. And some interesting interactions with the Guardians and the Star Sapphires. Not the greatest GL stories ever, but they worked. DC Universe Online Legends 1 and 2 never played the MMORPG, which this is an expansion of, I guess. So I don't know what was happening in terms of this setup, but the Elseworlds aspects of this uh, were explained pretty quickly. The Luther versus Superman background, the Brainiac versus Luther setup. And then after that, it made sense and started a pretty interesting story. Booster Gold, 13 and 37. These are from the aughts. And I like the early one a lot more, issue 13, is Booster battling a Rip Hunter who has been Starro-ified heading into the final Crisis era. Adventurous and action-packed, an all-around solid book. 37 was fine, a humorous story by Giffen and Dematisse. But humor sometimes works for you, and sometimes not. And from the combination of Manuel and a few other sources that I can't quite remember, I read Detective Comics 471-472, and then 879-881. through The early two issues were the return of the old-school and classic Batman villain, and I mean old-school, Hugo Strange. I loved that era when the Batman creators dug back to find Hugo Strange and the Mad Monk. Because I read about those guys about 37 bazillion times in Batman from the 30s to the 70s. So, pure nostalgia helps me with those particular detective comics issues. The later three were from the Scott Snyder storyline of the really, really crazy James Gordon Jr. treating Babs very, very badly. Good family drama for the Gordons and for the issues that. Francesco Francavia was involved in the issues, looked appropriately moody and scary. And from the dime sale in the week before Free Comic Book Day this year, with some uh, supplementing from Hoopla, I read The Green Hornet Strikes 6 through 10 from Dynamite, the 2011 run written by Brett Matthews, in a near future Chicago. We get a young man picking up the historical identity of the legendary crime fighter, the Green Hornet, take down the main big evil gang leader, fella, Gregor Cast. But who is this young kid, and what is his relationship to the original Hornet? And what about finding a new Cato? How does that happen? This was just a 10 issue run, and this, the second half, does really end with a nice ending. This take on the common comic book trope of legacy is pretty well done. I'm glad I picked this up, though I do have to admit the fact that each cost, at most, 10 cents. Well, let's just say that certainly helped my enjoyment. And from Hoopla, I read more from a Slice of Life series that I've been reading recently. Giant Days 49 through 54, which does, in fact, wrap up the series. This one gives a lot of space to Esther the goth girl as she works on her final senior paper and even, more scary, a job application. As I've mentioned before, this series does the occasional downtime or standalone adventure issue, and in this trade, that included an issue devoted to the strangest game of cricket ever. Also, one of the main supporting characters suffers a family death which really puts a strain on his relationship with one of our lead characters. None of the gals know quite how to deal with this, how to deal with him, which seemed very, very realistic. And the graduation issue was a nice combo of heartfelt and celebratory, and also realistically sad. After that, I read Giant Years As Time Goes By, a reunion of the girls a year after graduation. It's a crazy plot. But it's a very nice look at young adulthood. I found this to be a very solid series from start to finish, and I'm sad to see it go, but more so, I am glad that I read it at all. And I think that's everything. In terms of my favorite reads of the month, most of these are gonna come from hashtag Fantasy Comics Month. But let me also say that the many deaths of Layla Starr wrapped up in a very interesting. And thought provoking way, as did Giant Days. But like I said, this was fantasy month, and it's a struggle to come up with one favorite among so many fun reads. Sword of the Atom is wonderful. Elric and Gear Station were good. The Beginning of Warlord is great. But in terms of my absolute favorite, I have to say the wrap up of Elf was excellent. Both the story itself and the additional supplemental essays in the final issues. So I'm going with ElfQuest The Final Quest 24 as favorite read of the month. Next time, I'm not really sure what I'm going to be reading, other than horror comics for October Halloween times. But other than that, who knows? But whatever I do end up reading, I will be here to talk about the books I read in October, in an episode that ought to be out sometime, in early November. Feel free to let me know what you think of this episode, what you think of any of these books that I mentioned. You can send that feedback via email, relativelygeeky at gmail.com, or as a comment on the Facebook and blog post for the episode. The blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. You can follow the network on Twitter as relatively underscore geek, And, of course, the network has its own page on Facebook as well. Come join us. All are welcome. Thanks for listening, and keep the pages turning.